welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. And if we were to just simply read verses 18 through 25 casually, it might be possible to miss that that a climax has just been reached. Uh, This is going to be Luke's last logbook entry concerning uh, the cycles of persecution and expansion through the Jerusalem church, affecting the Jerusalem church. You know, up until this point in the book of Acts, Jewish believers and the Jerusalem church have dominated the first 12 chapters. But from this point forward, there is going to arise a new home base for church expansion that will, it will radiate from Antioch in Syria as the gospel is going to stretch west now. It's going to stretch out to the west toward the Gentile world, and Antioch, therefore, will serve as the origin for each of the Apostle Paul's uh, three missionary journeys. Uh, We will see that in the passage beginning next week. Yeah, This does not mean that Jerusalem uh, won't be on the radar, won't be mentioned at all going forward. Uh, There will come an important Jerusalem council in chapter 15, Paul will even become a prisoner in Jerusalem before being transported to Rome uh, to stand before Caesar uh, and to be tried. Uh, But going forward, from this point forward, uh, the tip and the point of expansion will extend from Antioch west into the Roman Empire, uh, beginning in what we know of today as Eastern Europe. And this shift away from Jerusalem, it must occur. It had to eventually occur. Saul and Barnabas are seen as returning to Antioch from Jerusalem. That's in in verse 25. Concluding their trip for famine relief. And that happened near or around 46 A.D. It will, will therefore be only about 20 more years before the Jewish-Roman wars begin in Judea. Uh, That happens in 66 AD, and it will culminate in the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. So the the apex of world missions can't remain in Jerusalem forever uh, because it's it's going to get sacked. And uh, it's going to be sacked because... As we discussed last Sunday, God no longer accepts Israel's sacrifices uh, of Passover lambs, nor nor the the blood of bulls and goats after the one-time offering and sacrifice of the body and blood of His His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, So the Old Covenant is obsolete, uh, therefore the related temple sacrifices are, are eclipsed, by Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, 
And in perfect fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9, God is going to put a full stop to all sacrifice and grain offerings uh, through a siege on Jerusalem, uh, a complete desolation led by uh, a Roman general named Titus. Jesus warned, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee. As this would initiate the days of God's vengeance upon Israel for rejecting His Son. It's Luke 21 verse 22. Uh, A reminder to everyone who who hears the gospel uh, today throughout history, uh, to everyone who hears the gospel that refusing the Jesus Christ, uh, refusing Jesus Christ as Lord, it, it, it brings with it tremendous cost. Judgment and enormous cost. The time is, the clock is ticking for the Jews in Jerusalem who remain living there. Um, last week, we observed the arrest and the martyrdom of the Apostle James along with Peter's harrowing escape from prison, escape from the clutches of King Herod Agrippa. And and now Peter has fled for his life. Herod is searching everywhere for him. Uh, Notice in verse 17, when even Scripture does not tell you where it was that Peter fled, uh, it was meant to be kept a secret. It merely reads how Peter left and went to another place. James had died. Peter has fled. And boy, round one clearly goes to Herod. Round one goes to Herod. He's on top of the world. He is the most powerful man in all Israel. He likes to make sure that everybody knows it. He's a very brutal man. You know, is the survival of the church in jeopardy? No. No. Clearly, 2,000 years of church history has proven no. The persecution will not stop the advancement of the church and the gospel. You know, and God is more than capable of handling even the cruelest dictators. Uh, for James... This would be our Lord's brother James, not the Apostle James. It's the Lord's brother James. Uh, for him, he reminds us uh, God is opposed to the proud. And as our scripture reading from Romans 12 reminds us, never take your own revenge. Beloved, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This is a challenge for us, huh? This is a challenging passage for us to leave everything in the hands of God because Herod is so cruel. We would really think that somebody better do something about this guy. And we'll see, we'll now see that somebody is God. Remember, as we read, James, the Apostle James is dead. Peter has fled. Next, in verse 18, it says, Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. 
Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon or Sidon. And with one accord, they came to him and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, uh, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Well, there are a, uh, a few principles in this message that, that we can be very thankful for. Beginning with number one, the apostle Peter fled. You probably also remember that back in chapter nine, uh, when Saul, who we know as the apostle Paul, uh, when he was lowered by some disciples in a basket down the, the outer wall in Damascus in order for him to escape and to flee. So apparently, if you were being persecuted unto death, it's okay to flee. That, that is a good thing. If you're being persecuted unto death for Jesus, it, it isn't cowardice to run and hide. Uh, now, that doesn't mean we should cower from speaking the gospel and the truth to people. Uh, but simply, when our life is threatened because of it, you know, we don't have to adopt a martyr's complex. Uh, it's, it's okay to run and hide. Even more importantly, when persecution is for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. Now, we're not talking about uh, wartime and, and wars between nations or, or a random home invasion where someone breaks in uh, completely unrelated to the gospel. But when persecution is for the sake of the gospel, uh, and when we are threatened because of our testimony and the cause of Christ, we don't take justice into our own hands. N never take your own revenge. A vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I, I will repay. You know, God assures he's more than capable of enforcing justice. But King Herod Agrippa, this, this is the grandson now of Herod the Great. He's the one who tried to have Jesus eliminated as an infant uh, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Uh, the, Herod the Great uh, was the grandfather. Now, King Herod Agrippa, uh, he, he's off the chain. He, he's, he's out of control. And, and following an exhaustive, exhaustive search by the guards to find Peter, they come up empty. It, it would be no surprise. Remember, we learned that this is the week of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted eight days. And Peter escaped on the night of the last day. Uh, it, it, the feast was over. So it wouldn't be a surprise the morning after 
that, that as thousands of Jews now are, are leaving Judea after the feast, that uh, they, they'd be dispersing in every direction from Jerusalem uh, this morning after. You know, P- Peter probably just threw on a hoodie and, and blended in. Drifted away. Hard to find with that many people leaving Jerusalem in that day. But, but it was not a good day to be a guard. It is well documented that the, the typical Roman practice at this time would, would be that if a guard allowed any prisoner to escape, that guard would suffer the same penalty intended for the prisoner. So the guards were executed. What does that tell us about what the fate was going to be for Peter the next morning? As we spoke last week, he, he was going to be executed. There was no chance in Herod's mind that Peter was going to be pardoned somehow. Um, everybody realized Peter was going to be ex, uh, executed. Um, and, and since the guards knew that their neck was on the line, remember Peter was chained between two guards, uh, there's no way they were going to let him escape. And, and now they can't find Peter. The feast is over. For that reason, Herod returns to his home, Caesarea. It's a place that Herod Agrippa was born uh, on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, He returns to a majestic palace that his grandfather built, Herod the Great. And the following are just a few photos to offer us a little bit of perspective here. This first one is going to be a map. This will show us in relation to... Can you see that? Relationship to Jerusalem, which is down in the middle, I've circled there in red. Caesarea is circled red about midway up on the coast. And then Tyre and Sidon are up near the top. So you got a little bit of a relationship there in Israel, uh, how far uh, away these places are. Uh, Of course, um, Antioch would be 300 miles, Syrian Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem out of the picture. Second, I've showed this before to you, but this is an artist's rendition of Caesarea. That, 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 is, uh, that is drawn from the excavation of the ruins of what Caesarea... It was a very impressive city. Very impressive port city. They had a, a safety harbor where ships could come in. Uh, you can see where, uh, down at the bottom there where the amphitheater sat. Uh, Herod's, Herod's uh, palace... Is, is in there. Um, let's do one more of Herod's theater. You got maybe a couple more. That is the excavation site there. The same picture you just saw. Herod's theater is on the right. That has been excavated and to great extent extor- uh, restored. Let's have another one. There it is. That's the amphitheater on the left looking out to the Mediterranean Sea. One more photo. Isn't that fantastic? You've been there. Yeah. Herod the Great built that, and now his son is there. It's, it's called Herod's Theater. Um, wow. What an impressive city that was in that day. This was Herod's hometown. So essentially, Herod... you know. He's back home. He's in his hometown. He, he's playing with home field advantage. 
when these delegates arrive from Tyre and Sidon, and uh, we, we have no re- really no idea why Herod was so angry with these cities, uh, but in verse 20 we read, now, now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and, uh, and with one accord they came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. Basically, their grocery supply chain came through Herod Agrippa, depended upon Israel and Herod. So delegations from Tyre, about 25 miles north, actually about 50 miles north, uh, and uh, Sidon's another 25 miles beyond that. These delegations were sent to Caesarea, you know, kind of kiss and make up. Whatever they need to do to get the, the groceries flowing again. And they won the support of, well, actually they probably paid off Blastus. But in some way, they won the support of Blastus. He was the, the king's chamberlain. A, a, that's a trusted personal attendant of the king. And by recognizing the sin of pride, I mean, we, we all recognize this. Think about the sin of pride and arrogance. The, it, it's natural in all fallen humanity to think more of self than of others. But thinking of pride in this city, it's probably no surprise to us to discover that Blastus negotiates this settlement between the delegates and the king. I'm going to say it in these words. Here's what we're going to do. All right. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to have the king come out into his grandfather's amphitheater. And when he begins to speak, you guys are going to pour out the praise and the cries of adoration in front of his home crowd, okay? That's what you tire inside on. You guys are going to start this. You're going to get this all flowing. Here's how it's going to go down. Now, to discover that Herod would even go along with such a fake you know, sham... It teaches us more than we need to know about the lack of character in King Herod. But he digs it. He likes this idea. And there is a certain day appointed for all of this to go down. There's a day appointed. And records tell us that this actually occurred in the midst of a holiday. So people were off during this week. uh, In the midst of a holiday paying tribute to Caesar... And in verse 21, on an appointed day, that, that is an appointed day agreed upon by Blastus and Tyre and Sidon and Herod. This was the day. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum. That, that's a raised platform with a, with a special seat, a dignified seat. He took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. So, so he comes out of his, his dressing room. He's got his makeup done and his hair, you know, all set up and dressed magnificently, ready to play his part. And, and it even seems as, as though they begin praising him before he ever really gets rolling in the speech, before he has time to say much of anything. And it is incredible how 
a renowned Jewish historian, secular source here, a renowned Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus. It's not Bocephus, Josephus. Flavian Josephus captured what occurred when King Agrippa appeared on that very morning in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews. Josephus writes this, quote, Clad in a garment woven completely of silver, Herod entered the theater at daybreak. There the silver, illumined by the torch, the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously radiant, and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. Straightway his flatterers, mind that Josephus says they were flatterers, straightway his flatterers raised their voices from various directions, though hardly for his good, addressing him as a god. They said, may you be favorable to us, they added, and if we have hitherto feared you as a man, yet from here forward or henceforth we agree that you are more than a mortal being. The king did not rebuke them, uh, nor did he reject their flattery as impious, but shortly thereafter he looked up and saw an owl perched on a rope over his head at once recognizing this as a harbinger of woes, Herod felt a stab of pain in his heart. He was also gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere at once, and that was intense from the start. Leaping up, he said to his friends, I, a god in your eyes, am now bidden to lay down my life, for fat, fate brings immediate refuge refutation. Fate immediately refutes. These are the words of Herod. Fate immediately refutes the lying words that have been directed at me. I, who was called immortal by you, am now under sentence of death, but I must accept my lot as God wills it. In fact, I have lived in no ordinary fashion, but in the grand style that is hailed as true bliss. Even as he was speaking these words, writes Josephus, he was overcome by more intense pain. They hastened, therefore, to convey him to the palace. And the word flashed about to everyone that he was on the very verge of death, exhausted after five days by the pain in his abdomen. He departed this life in the 54th year of his life and in the seventh year of his reign." So impressive that a secular Jewish historian like Josephus affirms not only the time or the place and the manner of death, but also the reason being attributed to Herod's accepting man's praise as if he were a god. Josephus says that's the reason. Luke records the event in this way, looking at verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal garments, remember all woven of silver, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people were kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. 
and he was eaten by worms and died. Should it be any surprise that God is opposed to the proud? Pride is what was in the, the mind of Satan or Lucifer when he said, Isaiah chapter 14, I will make myself like the Most High. And Isaiah records his fate, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Friends, you don't need to sink. You don't have to wish that you're God or pretend to be a God in order to sink to the levels of Satan. To commit the sin of making yourself like the Most High, all you have to do is accept the praise and worship of men. Any desire to orchestrate praise, uh, to invite adoration to ourselves is placing ourselves on the throne where only God is allowed to sit. Why would we think that this passage only applies to uh, to Herod? Why would we conclude that, oh, this is only a one-time deal with Herod? It would be an error to mistake uh, to think that since God hasn't yet struck us dead, that, that we're apparently okay then. Or, or apparently that this, this passage sets that bar of pride so high, so excessive, that we can never reach it. So, so in, in that mind, in that train of thought, uh, supposedly if you haven't been called out as a god or, or a goddess, and, and if, you, if you don't simply drop dead, God must be all right with you. That's not what this is teaching. In that case, everyone who remains living would be just all right. That, that obviously is not the right interpretation. Instead, this event with Herod is not provided as an example for who God typically deals with in every situation of every person who is dying of pride. It's rather provided as a lesson and a vivid illustration for us so that we can know how, how God views pride And just as Proverbs 6 verse 7 reveals, pride or haughty eyes is one of the seven things that the Lord hates. Yes, they are an abomination to Him. God hates pride. This illustration is to prove how a person consumed and puffed up with pride is dead even while they walk. The worms just haven't imposed their will upon the corpse yet. I was thinking about titling this message, It's Showtime. 
Because when Herod presented himself out on that stage, he knew exactly what he was doing. The day and this display was all pre-planned. This was Herod's hometown, Herod's theater, Herod's platform, and Herod's stage. Or actually, he thought it all belonged to him. But ultimately, who owns every stage? God owns that stage. God made this point to Herod and to everyone else who's ever read this passage. Here's the point. This is my stage. And you're on it. Quit making a display of yourself on my stage. Folks, if I, if I were a professional performer... I think this passage would scare me to death. Every time I would stand in front of a camera or step out onto Broadway or onto a ball field or sing into a microphone. Because in light of of this passage, I would have to ask myself, how are people perceiving me? And how is what I am doing giving the glory to God? Do you see yourselves as a celebrity? Is the world that surrounds you your stage? Well, Herod proves that those who are proud and arrogant... For them, that which is their biggest stage in life, their biggest platform for the proud, it can become a deadly poison for them. Meanwhile, those who recognize they are at the very best, at the very best, playing as extras on God's stage, those people will humble themselves under the mighty hand of God because God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Is your life showtime? If so, what is your stage? And and what starring role have you chosen to play? Because if life has become something of yours, if life has become something of yours that you are putting on display, you'll never be satisfied. And people's adoration will never be enough. There is an entire culture in Hollywood, elsewhere, They're being pursued by the same worms that consumed Herod. So you ask, what do I do about it? You begin by recognizing, by acknowledging, life 
It's not your theater. It's not yours. And the path to reconciliation with God is to stop putting on a display and performing in front of everybody, but instead to realize that that every rostrum, every platform that you have been standing on, it's God's stage. Belongs to Him. And because God's Son willingly died on the cross for yours and my sins, and because Jesus has risen from the dead and has ascended to the right hand of God, He he is the Lord and Savior of the world. He is the only one who is deserving of worship and praise. Don't get me wrong, you and I, once we are cleansed of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, you and I, we're surely each playing a part. God doesn't just leave you sitting sitting in the audience as a spectator. You've got a role to play. But it's a very minor part. And it's not the starring role. In in fact, it may be more helpful to view ourselves as stagehands. You know, behind the stage, we're pulling any cords, moving the curtains, flashing lighting, flicking switches that will enhance God to receive His proper glory and praise. That's all we are. At some point in your life, you know, before falling like Herod, everyone needs to realize you're not the star of your own show. And when you step out each day, it's not your showtime. We live in an age... We live in an age when everybody is playing, play-acting, just like Herod. They're, they're putting themselves on display, soliciting people's praise. Sometimes it occurs on social media. It, it might be in the halls of government. It happens wherever power is displayed. It's definitely in fashion modeling and marketing. Young people, put some clothes on. It's interesting how 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says, Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Today, pride is in the human body. Pride is in the mind. It's in in higher education and intellectualism. People are prideful. 
The spirit of Herod can enter every form of the arts. People are putting themselves on display everywhere. It's in religion. It's far too common in worship and in preaching. Pastor Charles Swindoll, I I hope you know who he is. Um, Most of you probably do. Very very accomplished pastor, theologian, um, great speaker. Great speaker. At one time, he was the president of the seminary that I attended. Um, His presence projects humility. He told us students once that that there is a plaque above the door in his office. As he departs his pastoral office to step into the pulpit each Sunday, it reads, what is your motive? Above my door it reads, exit. I'll show you. What is your motive? This surely doesn't suggest anyone should purposefully preach poorly, not to draw attention to themselves. Uh, That isn't humility. Uh, Nobody would ever tell Alistair Begg, you know, could you just preach a little worse? You're too good. I wish you'd stop. No, that's not what we're talking about. God has gifted him to bless us with the preaching of the word. Uh, It's the same with music. God is not glorified by somebody playing poorly. That's not humility either. You play, you preach, you work to the best of the ability that God gave you. But while putting him on display... What platform are you stepping out on each day? What do you wear? What do you drive? How do you live? What what words do you speak? Who do you associate with? Whatever it is, ask yourself, Does all this scream, look at me? Adore and praise me? And I will make myself like the Most High? That is the sin of pride. It's the sin of Herod. And God is opposed to the proud. Friends, Christ has offered us a better way, much better way to live our lives. Returning to our scripture reading earlier, Romans 12 verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, that suggests we blend in. Be ready to join and and conform to others. You know, not making everything about ourselves. 
And Paul writes, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not be haughty in mind. Haughty in mind, it's it's a Greek phrase that points to your diaphragm for breathing. It, It implies taking a deep breath to puff yourself up. With with the mind, it suggests uh, thinking highly of self and being arrogant in mind and prideful, puffing yourself up. God says, don't do that. And and instead, associate with the lowly. God, God is pleased with that. Associates another interesting Greek term. It means to accommodate and to make yourself compatible with the lowly or humble. Jesus said, uh, blessed are the meek or humble, for they will inherit the earth. A humble person assesses him or herself rightly in their mind. Don't overestimate. Conform. Become compatible with those who are, who are lowly and who, who are humble at heart. Associate with the lowly. And, and I think sometimes we, we look at that phrase and we think, think of this phrase, associates, uh, we think it means associating with the lowly. It means to visit them for a moment or two. Now, associate with them, you know, it, it's possible for our attitude to be similar to that which we see on displayed on television sometimes. Um, before I ex- illustrate this, let me, let me clearly express, I, I have no opinion toward Princess Diana, okay? It's just an illustration, just an observation. But, but everyone has probably seen a video or a photo of, of Princess Di, uh, how she would visit the poor in Africa. She, she would travel from place to place to raise awareness of poverty around the world. She would fundraise for them, part of her position. You know, I'm sure she treated those impoverished people really nicely. And then she would return on a private jet to a palace. But, but we can make the same mistake of thinking that associating with the lowly is like that. Stop in for a few minutes. Shake a hand. Kiss a baby. Associate with them, you know. Say hello as you drive by. That is not what associate with the lowly means. It suggests to make yourself become one of them. Be humble. It's the antithesis of, of exalting yourself high, as Satan did. And to humble is to associate and become just like the lowly. Too much to ask? Here's a perfect illustration of associating with the lowly. We have a Lord and a Savior 
Jesus Christ, who is and always has been throughout eternity God, and yet He humbled Himself at an appointed time to become a man, to be born of a virgin, and then to step out on the world stage. In Him, we are told, Colossians 2.9, in Him all the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. Yet nobody had regard for Him. Even His own people, the Jews, they did not highly esteem Him. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 53, it says, He had no stately form or majesty, or, nor any appearance that, that, that we would be attracted to Him. Just a regular old guy. You would think the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the mother's womb. You know, he, he didn't do that to create a body that looks like, well, Brad Pitt. He was just a regular guy. And mankind did not regard him. Yet Jesus still did not highly exalt himself. He became just like one of us. He associated with the lowly. And he took care of us. And he met the needs of the poor. And he ate with them. And he lived with them. And he loved them as a man. The poor, the sick, and the lonely. Folks, that is humility. And through Paul's letter to the Philippians, we are left with this command. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That is exactly what Christ did. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In closing this story of Herod, who was eaten by worms, by the way, I have only three questions. Of the following two kings... Which king will you serve? And which would you prefer to emulate? And which will you decide to worship?
will it be King Jesus who became humble to the point he died on a cross to save your soul from hell? Or will it be the king or queen who is looking back at you in the mirror? You decide. Let's pray. Holy Father, it is so tempting to think more of ourselves than what we are. And uh, that sin has infected all of humanity, including ourselves. And yet through the perfect picture of Christ and through the life that he lived, we've got an option. You've given us the opportunity to, to serve Him and to put Him on display and to call others to applaud Him. And the wonderful reward that, that you've promised to those who are just stagehands. Eternity in paradise a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. And you lay it out there for the taking. Father, be glorified in this. Thank you for the love you've shown us and taught us through the life of your Son as we look expectantly for the day that he will return. In Christ's name, amen.